This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And I can't tell you how excited I am today to be uh, talking with my guests. Yes, plural. We have a two-for-one today, Um, so that's always a lot of fun. But the subjects that we're going to be talking about, I can already tell just from you know reading from their materials in our pre-conversation before the program started, we're going to have a ton of fun talking about this. And so, you know, I'm not even going to tell you what we're talking about. We're just going to jump right into this. So please join me in welcoming Malcolm and Simone Collins to our program this morning. Welcome. Hello. It is so wonderful to be joining you today with my wonderful wife, Simone. We're so excited. Well, and we just have to tell folks. You are joining us from the absolutely beautiful, absolutely spectacular Peru. And we'll talk in the the program a little bit later about why that is, because that's part of your business. So very cool, very cool. Um, So let me tell people about you before we jump in. Originally a neuroscientist, an interest in entrepreneurship drove Malcolm to Stanford University, where he got his MBA. There he met Simone, his wife and co-author, who at the time was director of marketing at HubPages.com, managing a team of 20,000 freelancers. Together, they co-founded the art commission marketplace, ArtCorgi.com, after which Malcolm became director of strategy at South Korea's most desired source of early stage capital, and Simone earned her graduate degree from Cambridge while working in venture capital. The couple now runs a number of travel companies with a focus on Travelmax, their company, and are the best-selling authors of The Pragmatist's Guide to Life. So again, welcome Malcolm and Simone. Thank you so much. Oh, and what an introduction. I love it. When I hear other people talk about my life, I'm like, oh, it seems like I have everything fairly well sorted out. But when I think about my life on a daily basis, I'm like, oh my gosh. Right, right. Which is part of why you founded the Pragmatist Guide. Um, and, and I love this. We were talking off the air. You, you are both millennials. I'm mm-hmm. a baby boomer. Now I'm on the tail end of the baby boomer generation. Um, so, but you know, we, I, I recently had a discussion with someone on Facebook. And it was one of those where, you know, I, I, the little voice in my head was saying, walk away walk away, stop posting. Um, because she, you know, and, and I tell people, you know, don't, don't squibble squabble on Facebook and, and I use Facebook for business. So it's, you know, I, I don't want my clients seeing squibble squabbles, but it was, it was actually a very civil discourse, but it was one of those where I know I was not going to change her mind. And so that was, you know, that was the, the walk away part, but she has, and, and she's about my age, a fairly negative view of millennials. And I think we do tend to see that, especially with people of my generation, that, um, you know, you were you were privileged. You were the people who were raised with the we don't give first, second and third place awards. You just get participation. Um, you know, you you float through life. And I told her that virtually every millennial I know, and especially those who I have met through this program, 
are the opposite of that. I mean, they are some of the absolute most professional people that, that I have ever had the, the honor and privilege to meet. And so I love getting to know about you by reading your book and, and looking at your, your bios. So let's, let's kind of take this, this step back. Why did you decide that this was something that you wanted to do? Oh, goodness, Deb. Oh, well, Simone, it, very much, <laughs> it ties into what you, you said and how, how fallible humans are. So this tradition of always saying the generation below you has it so easy and so coddled has been basically perpetuated as long as we've had generations. Oh, we have Socrates saying right. this and complaining about yeah, it. I know. This we, is a, we've always thought, thought that. that. Mm-hmm. And, and while I would say that they're absolutely right. It's it's not about the generation. It's about all humans being lazy and dumb and stupid and not working hard because we're evolved to do that to a certain extent because it saves energy. Right. But I also find it so interesting, the whole concept of the participation awards and millennials, because it's a, a really good soundbite that a lot of people like to use. But at the same time, um, I, I've seen posted online, like people discussing this a lot, millennials trying to, to, to reason as to how how they can be accused of this when they never asked for participation. Right. It was their parents who said, yeah. oh, we like, must they, do they, this. I've heard someone say, you know, I would have much preferred a cookie, maybe some carrots, some water. Mm-hmm. And instead they're giving me participation rewards that I don't care about because I didn't earn it and it didn't feel good to me. It made me feel pathetic. Well, and, and the kids are kept track. Thing. You know, I, I was having a discussion with with a, a father who, you know, he he wouldn't let his kids do things where there were just participation things. And and we said, yeah, in a soccer game, those kids know who had the most goals. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. Know? They keep no, track. Losers I mean, are nature. still losers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, but we, we find that all very interesting. We find these stories that people tell to make excuses as to why they are not more successful or why other people had it easier right. or all mm-hmm. this. This, this idea of an, an external locus of control and blaming things on other people and other groups and other generations and bad timing is, is you, you can certainly make those arguments, but it's never going to help you improve as a person. Right. And we really want to encourage a more pragmatic approach to life where, mm-hmm. yes, circumstances happen to us. Yes, so many things are out of our control, but the only thing we can do is try to control the things we can. Mm -hmm. I I think even crueler than teaching a child that everyone's going to win an award is to teach a child that life is going to be fair. Right. And to teach a child to expect something. Or that even hard work and and merit will always yield the best results. Mm -hmm. Or even worse, that equality has sort of like an intrinsic moral value. Or or definition, for mm -hmm. that matter. It doesn't. Uh, We can get into that. I mean, you've read our book, so you know our thoughts on this. Mm -hmm. But Simone, I would love you. You know, she was talking about how we came up with the idea, what caused us to come up with the idea. Can you talk a little to that? Oh, goodness. I mean, this goes back to when we first met. Oddly enough, it was it was our first date. And for a little bit of, of context on this, I had turned 24 in life. I felt I had the perfect life. I donated a, a significant portion of my income to charity every year. I traveled internationally. I had my friends and my parties and everything was perfect. The only thing I'd never done at that point in my life yet was fall in love, date, do anything um, with the opposite sex, really, aside from just be friends with them and work with them, Mm -hmm. because I just couldn't be bothered to date. And I find it quite terrifying. So at age 24, I created a campaign to fall in love and have my heart broken so that I could at least tell other people after living a life very satisfied all by myself Mm -hmm. that I had tried tried it and it was 
underwhelming. You know, it's 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 completely overblown. And so I found Malcolm in the midst of this campaign, and he came across as jarringly different from every other man that I dated so far uh, in, in this rather rigorous outreach that I'd done. And he sat across from me at dinner and he said, well, I'm not really looking to date right now. I'm looking for a wife and I expect to find her this fall at Stanford because there, uh, when I attend their business school, I know there will be a very large pool of pre-vetted candidates where I'm most likely to find the person who's good enough to marry. Mm -hmm. And I, having just gone on so many dates with guys who couldn't even express interest in having sex with me, which is obviously why they were going on a date with me in the first place. Uh, here's this guy who's telling me that he's looking to marry someone and I'm probably not a good candidate because I, I don't have the right credentials. Mm -hmm. I was just immediately in love with him. Right. It was I, I a was, job he, interview almost. Oh, uh, yeah. But it was also a job interview where he was already saying, and clearly we're not going to hire you, but, you know, I may humor you for this interview. Yeah, since yeah you know, we'll, we'll have dinner and drinks and that'll be it. Yeah. And, and over that dinner Yeah, oh, I've lost why you. he believed it, what he wanted to achieve in life, mm -hmm. how he was going to achieve it. And then he turned to me and he, he asked, okay, so what is your, what are you going to achieve with your life? What do you actually care about? And I found myself giving the very contrite, torn or worn, well-worn answers that everyone else gives, which are, oh, I want to be happy. I want to help others. I want to reach some level of transcendence in, in life, some you know, sort of religious, spiritual transcendence or enlightenment or or goodness and he asked me why and that sort of caused this existential crisis that over the, a series of, of subsequent dates that we decided to go on uh, throughout the summer led me to realize just how how empty my life was. I, I, I travel, I, I went on these pilgrimages when I would take trips every year to religious sites to try to understand the greater meaning of the world. And I did charity work and I did all these things that I thought were so meaningful and that I thought were part of a meaningful, uh, actualized person's life. And when Malcolm actually prompted me to investigate those things for myself, to, to ask myself why I did that, I realized not only how how feckless my actions were, how, how short-lived their effects were, but also how very uh, conceited and, and superficial all of my virtue signaling was. All this charity work, all this, this religious, spiritual pilgrimage stuff where I thought I was you know, having these revelations, it was really just kind of me getting a little bit dehydrated in the middle of a Japanese pilgrimage island because I was lost, you know? And, and, I, I realized that I had to, from the ground up, figure out what I really believed and what I really valued so that I, I wouldn't continue with these superficial, meaningless, impactless actions while still feeling like I'd, I'd done something. And that sort of prompted us to, Malcolm helped me go through the process of, of critically thinking for myself without outside intervention, what I believed and why I believed it. And over time, this kind of evolved into the prototype of the Pragmatist Guide to Life, which we which we then wrote, mm -hmm. because once I went through that process, there was a massive transformation. The way I spoke, the way I moved, the way I talked, the way I dressed all changed. Well, what happened was that she said, you know, she came to me and she said, OK, I've decided what I want from life. Here's what it is. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, well, you're obviously not going to achieve it. 
And I think the millennials are so used to hearing, well, anyone can achieve anything. And she, you know, and I was like, well, you're just not. She's like, well, what do you mean? I go, look at the way you dress, look at the way you talk, look at who your friends are. Like, they, they, these aren't the friends that somebody who achieves what you want to achieve has. Right. This isn't the tonality. This isn't the outfit. Everything needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. And she said, I don't believe you. And I said, then prove me wrong. Right. And so what she did is she then went on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And she she collected like a hundred women who had achieved what she wanted to achieve with life, mm-hmm. um, and she uh, sorted through these women where she took out anyone who had achieved it because of who they married, anyone who had achieved it because of their looks, mm-hmm. just people women who had achieved it because they had genuinely achieved it. Right. She looked at the way she they dressed. She looked at what colleges they went to. She looked at the way you know she looked up uh, YouTube interviews of them. Looked at the way they talked, and she's like. You know what? I looked at the evidence. I created sort of a standard of evidence for myself mm-hmm. that I needed to change my mind. I searched for it. It turned out I was wrong about my beliefs, and I have adapted my beliefs to meet the evidence that I have. And she just, and we worked together to create a new character for her, a character that could be successful, a character that would be um, uh, something that would move her forward. And, you know, now. She runs a business empire that makes, you know, well over a hundred million dollars a year in sales. Yeah, it's jarring how much of a change that and that's transformation. Only six years, right? Yeah, it's been it's been about six years since that that first date, uh, just a little bit more, and it's 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 really remarkable just how big a change all of that made. And then after Malcolm saw how that process had transformed me. He sort of said, well, let's do, let's do me now. Yeah, let's do me <laughs> right, now. I was right. like, yeah. look at how amazing you are now. I want to be like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, then we started, okay, well, how do we make this a more systematic process? How do we replicate this? How do we, how do we parse out the mechanisms that actually made a difference? And that resulted ultimately in this book. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, what, what I got when I read the book was it's not, it's about coming to terms with who you are. And why you are that way, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, you know, it's not, you know, I, I, I was, it was funny as, as I was reading it, I was thinking back to many years ago when I took a poly, uh, political science class and my, my poli sci professor was kind of a little out there. And I remember one of the things she asked, now this was, this, this really, this was back in the, the early eighties. And she said, you know, I want you to tell me, and this was, you know, when you could ask these politically incorrect questions, she said, I want you to tell me if you are Republican or Democrat and why. And then before any of us could say anything, she said, and if you say it's because your parents were, you'll fail this class. (laughs) And and of course, you know, 90% of the class went, but I'm 18, 19 years old. and, 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 you know. And, and the point I'm making is that a lot of our values, a lot of our goals are based on other things, you know, how we were brought up, um, what our religion is teaching us, um, you know, all these various things. And then we come to accept them as being, well, that's the way it has to be. And, you know, that was what I, you know, when I, and, and, you know, this, this is what I got when I read through your book is that. If you have accepted it, and you know it, that's that's not saying that's bad, but you need to come to those conclusions yourself. You know, if you are, say, a Republican, a Democrat, okay, why? Why are you that? 
Mm-hmm. And and not just because that was what mommy and daddy were or, you know, because I live in a conservative part of the country or, um, you know, it's <clears throat> it was funny, you know, when, when I was reading that Malcolm went to Stanford, I went to University of Colorado. And so we're 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 rival football teams. And so, you know, why did I you know think that? Well, you know, all these various things. And and it is, you know, so many times we just accept that that's the way, and I'm putting this in my lovely little air quotes, we have to be. And maybe I had a, a different thought process through this because as, you know, people who've listened to my program a lot know, I've had quite a few medical issues in the last couple of years, you know, circled the drain a couple of times, and it really does make you think differently, um, you know, about about everything, you know, what, what you want to do, what you feel, what you believe. But you don't have to go through something like that to go through the process of what you're talking about. And, you know, and and, and I I love the concept because there's the big thing is there's no right or wrong. It just needs to be you, Um, you know, and Mm -hmm. and and the same thing, you know, it's I, I I can't look at you and go, well, you're wrong because your philosophy is X. No, it's your philosophy. And I think that's where it gets difficult for people is is. Not only do we accept other people's values, then we want to impose ours on somebody else. Yeah, you know, to, to really pick up on the sports team mentality you were talking about, truth, beliefs have become a team sport in this country. Right. When we talk about political opinion or something like that, and we see information has come out, information that we know is true, mm-hmm. information that we say, oh, this is accurate, but... We get upset about that because it, it contradicts our team's opinion. Like, right. for example, suppose, you know, like like we do, we're actually, you know, a, a, a pro-gun couple. But when, um, you know, a school shooting comes out, other pro-gun people will say, oh, this is bad mm-hmm. because it hurts our team. Right. It's like our team just had a loss here. Mm-hmm. So let's like pretend this didn't happen. Let's pretend it was all like conspiracy. And that's what happens when you have truth becoming a team sport. Mm -hmm. When you're no longer looking for evidence that you're right or you're wrong, but you just want your side and your beliefs to quote unquote win. Mm -hmm. And something that we really promote both in our business and in our lives is when you have something that you believe strongly in, you know, like so suppose gun control or being against gun control, um, have you looked for evidence that you might be wrong and what level of evidence would you need Mm -hmm. to change your mind? Mm -hmm. And, and then most importantly, okay, you've said, I need X evidence to change my mind. You know, suppose I'm a communist and I go, okay, to the communist, what evidence do you need to change your mind about this? And then I say, have you looked to see if that evidence exists already in the world? Have you genuinely looked to see that you might be wrong with an open mind to accepting that you might be wrong? Right. And you can be really specific with those standards of evidence. Like I'm going to need to see a randomized controlled study on on at least two populations over 100 people in size that Mm -hmm. demonstrates clearly, you know, with a. What's it like? What is it called? The P factor? Over right. right. And or I'm going to have personal experience of this. Right. You know, I need to try this in my local high school to see, you know, I'm a teacher in my local high school. I need to try communism to see how it turns the students on each other or makes them all happy. Yeah. We don't we don't care how specific people's standards of evidence are. We don't care if it's based on like a vision versus based on some sort of scientific study based on someone else's opinion. Honestly, we just 
like like you were saying earlier, we, we don't really care what your conclusion is. We show that you care your, your sh- or sorry, we care that you show your work. Right. Which is always the meanest thing when teachers would say, show your work, show your right, work. Right. And now yes. How did you get that? Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. I'm like, when people tell me I believe X, I'm like, show your work. Right. I don't care what you believe. Just show your work because, and the reason why I care that they show their work is because I want to be wrong. The greatest moments in my life are when I realize that something that I believed really deeply in was probably wrong Mm -hmm. and I needed to rethink it because when I had those moments and I rethought it and I realigned myself, my life became so much easier after that. Right. I mean, it's the only way we improve and it's extremely painful because it usually means coming to terms with the fact that you've been operating under a false assumption or mm-hmm. using that information for a long period of time. You could have spent years of your life going in the wrong direction. But why those moments are so great is that's the point in, in your life when you can finally turn around. And our nonprofit is entirely dedicated to this. So all of the money from our book goes to a nonprofit. I mean, we sell our book for nothing, like 99 cents, right? The lowest and you Amazon give away the audio book. version. And, you know, I, I loved all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, this, so the audio version, we're going to be, we're working on it right now. It's almost done. Oh, um, so we're very excited about that. And we'll it. be giving that away as soon as it's done. Well, you know, and, and it was funny because when you were mentioning that, you know, you like to be proved wrong, that's painful for people. I mean, you know, and because, especially if it's a long-held belief. And so I'll admit, I also like it when I'm proved right. You know, and, and maybe it's, oh, okay, there, there was justification for me believing like this. Um, but what I really like is when I've had to think through the process. You know, is there a reason I'm right? And, oh, okay, there was. So it's okay to go forward with that. It's still just not this sheep mentality. Um, And, you know, another discussion I had with somebody on Facebook, again, about millennials. Um, This person said, I am so disheartened because I just saw a survey that said, you know, a a fairly high percentage. I mean, it was like 30% or something of millennials believe the world is flat. And, oh, I saw that. Oh, and, and I responded, and now this is an extremely well-educated person who I admire, um, you know, and, 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 and I said, okay, first of all, we all know that surveys and statistics can be made to say what we want them to say, um, you know, by, by how we ask the question, by how we interpret the data, all these various things. And so as you're reviewing all this, you know, that's part of what you need to look at. And, and I told her, I said, you know, how do we know that study didn't go into a bar and ask 10 millennials who were half drunk? You know, I said, there's nothing in this information that, that these folks are providing that tells us how they reached their conclusions. And it's exactly what Simone was saying. We have to know that part before we can go forward with, you know, with making our decisions. I, I So I love so much what you're saying right there because that is so sort of a, a, a thought process that so many people go through that we really want to challenge people on. So we hear a study, right, and we're like, that sounds wrong, mm-hmm. right? And it challenges my worldview. I don't think the world really operates like that. Right. Um, but when we think that, the first inclination we have is to come up in our head with all of the ways the research they may have done, the way they may have collected data could have been wrong, the way they could have interpreted things may have been wrong. But what we also need to do, because this isn't our natural inclination to think, but maybe everything I believe about the world is wrong, Mm -hmm. and maybe this study is right. Mm -hmm. So when we search for a study where we have that natural inclination to dismiss it, to look for reasons it's wrong, we should make an effort to also search for reasons it's right. Mm-hmm. 
Because it may be the case. I mean, that's happened to us a few times recently where we were just certain something was wrong and we saw a study and we're like, that can't be true. And then we researched it some more and we're like, whoa, Mm -hmm. this like messes with our brains. But we have to realign. We have to, because we have decided what we believe and what standards of evidence is we need to change our beliefs. Mm -hmm. And when we see those standards of evidence met, we have, we can't say, oh, I was raised to be, you know, whatever. Well, and if if 30% of millennials really do think the world is flat, I want to know that. Yeah, because I need to I need to operate with that knowledge mm-hmm. when we look at, at you guys at the own a travel business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. You got to make sure that maybe I can op- I can sell to flat earthers, right? Right, right. Yeah. you know, don't fall off the edge flat tour. <laughs> yeah, assuring them that they will not fall off any insurance for falling off the edge of the earth. Yeah, make a ton of money. Yeah. But we want knowledge is power. I mean, there's no reason why we should be so afraid of things that question our reality. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the other things that you talk about in your book is things change. You know, I was about to say reality, but, you know, things change. And what was very important in one generation and culturally accepted, things like that, changes. And and it was at that point in time something that was accepted as being okay. Or, you know, all those various things. And, and um, you know, slavery is an example of that. You know, I, I live in Atlanta. And as much as we now know and think and believe, and, and I'm not going to say 100%, because I'm sure there are still people who think this is acceptable, but slavery, you know, is, is not a good thing. Um, and two-thirds of a person is not good. I mean, all those various things. But it was accepted back then to have that thought process. You know, if you lived in Germany in the 1940s, it was, you know, in many ways, it was it was accepted, obviously, to have a, a very specific view of the world. Um, you know, Plato, Aristotle, all those various people had, you know, views about, um, you know, many things that now we look back and go, well, that's stupid. But it wasn't stupid for them at that point in time. Exactly. I, I love that so much. And, you know, you see this within our own culture. You know, we look back at culture revered figures and people are like, you know, by the way, he had slaves and he mm-hmm. raped them pretty regularly. And, um, you know, now we're like, well, it doesn't really matter because that was his culture and we can ignore that. And I think that what we need to do as people is say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, he did stuff that today we see as terrible because it was his culture in his time. Mm-hmm. But what are we getting wrong? Right. There's so many things that our society just says are obviously true. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's that equality is good, whether it's that racism is bad, whether it's that rape of somebody less powerful than you is wrong. Like these are things and you hear these and you're like, well, obviously they're true. Of course. We Mm -hmm. don't know that a future generation won't see them as maybe naive Mm -hmm. or, or worse than naive you know, objectively immoral. Like, let's think about something. So when we try and think about, okay, what could our culture be wrong about right now? What could things change about? I think uh, there's a very high probability that after we're able to develop meat in a lab, mm-hmm. people will look back at our society and horrified that we did factory farming mm-hmm. because, you know, they still get to eat meat. They don't have to deal with right. the moral cost of it. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, the same way we are with slavery. Now that we've developed robotic automation, get slavery and we're like, oh, wasn't that horrifying? And people are like, you know, even a hundred years ago, most of your fact, your goods were being made by basically slaves in other countries. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
You know, but anyway, I, 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 I'm a huge uh, science fiction, especially Star Trek fan. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the ones that, that they, uh, you know, and, you know, yes, this is, is fiction, but, you know, one of the things that, that they scorn in the series is money. You know, well, they're not, you know, everybody has everything that they need, um, you know, and, and you're not paid a salary, you know, all these various things. And and I love in the, the series that those who do are frowned upon and looked at as evil, um, you know, and for, for true Star Trek fans and who know what I'm talking about, those are like the Ferengi. Um, you know, you're thinking, oh, you know, you don't you don't want those people. And but that very I mean, that's something that I could easily see where, you know, we we do look back and we think, wait a minute. People had money. They, you know, all these various things. They must have all been evil. Can you imagine that that president had money? Right. What an evil president he was. You know, and I say that wanting money. I mean, you know, this this is one of my favorite props. (laughs) (laughs) And and because we still need money right now. I mean, you know, we have bills we have to pay. You know, we, we have to eat. And... You know, I, I'm going to go shopping here pretty soon. You know, we, we still need money in this culture. Um, but even around the world, you look at their different philosophy about money. Um, and, and it's funny because then it gets tied into their political type of things. And, and then sometimes their religious overtones and, and all those various things. And so I would, you know, it, it, we could just talk about this all day because it, to me, this is fascinating to really think, you know, this is what happens and, and it is continually evolving. And, and you know, I'm, I'm old enough <clears throat> that I have seen things change. Um, you know, I grew up in the in the, the 70s and, and seeing how, um, you know, uh, that was was the, the post Vietnam era. You know, and, and things like that. And, and it's it to me, it's just fascinating. And I love this. And, and I love kind of the people watching part of it. <laughs> I, I love what you're saying so much. And I love the money one because that's what I want to hold on to in the future with this sort of you don't know what future people will see as immoral. Mm-hmm. And so what you judge as moral and immoral shouldn't be what your friends say is moral and immoral. Right. It should be what you have logically thought through and mm-hmm. decided is moral and immoral. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what it comes down to, is it needs to be what you have decided and not not just because somebody else does it or somebody else told you that. Um, you know, and, 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 and then, you know, we're going to segue. I love it when I get to do this. And we do that for business purposes also. Um, you know, I'm, I'm looking here at my five, six, seven shelves of business how-to books. You know, that the, you need to, to market to people, especially because I'm in the marketing. This is how you need to market to people. It is, you know, frequently a lot of the books that I, I have and a lot of the themes that I have. And, and it's so there's there's many things. There's telling me how I should be running my business, how I should be treating people, you know, all these various things. And again, we're not stopping and thinking in our business we're not thinking through those things. You know, what is what is our foundation and why are we doing what we're doing? Absolutely. And I think that even with business stuff, you know, we've changed our minds on a few topics recently. And um, it's 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 really meaningful when you're open to the fact. I mean, one of the big things that we changed our mind about just in the past couple of weeks, because we'd been doing a study on this for a few years, because I thought one thing and Simone thought another and we were trying to figure out which was true, which was that are friends and networking events actually useful at building your business mm-hmm. when contrasted with other things you could spend the same amount of time on, like cold calling, cold right. emailing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
And honestly, we came to the conclusion that cold calling and cold emailing per time spent is a better use of time. Hmm. And that is something I never anticipated. I always thought, because I'd always been told business, it's about networking, it's about your friends, it's about... And I realize it's not true. Oh, I think a lot of it comes down to confirmation bias in the end. You you mm-hmm. think that networking and having your friends and getting, you know, those connections through your quote unquote network is is how you succeed because it's how so many people right. we've have been succeeded. told that that's what you do. Yeah, right. and, and because people rely on that as as a sort of instinct to make and, their connections and, and sales and get their jobs, they do have those anecdotes. But it's also availability heuristic, yeah. which is what you're talking about. So it's how most people have succeeded. So you look at people who have succeeded, and they're like, they succeeded through this path. Yeah. But then when you think about it, well, that's a path that 99% of the population takes. It would make sense that most of the population would have succeeded on that path, even if the other path is, say, 70% more effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, we judge ourselves. So we look at it and we go, okay, well, you know, 99% of my friends are successful with their networking, and I'm not, therefore I'm doing it wrong. You know, yes. You know, yeah. you know and, and, and granted there, you know, there, there might be, and I, you know, I, I use the wrong word on purpose. Um, maybe it's though I'm doing it incorrectly. Maybe it's because I don't like it. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I know people who would rather die then go to a networking event, especially if they're going to make you stand up and do your 30-second commercial. Um, you know, and, and so they're not going to be successful at it because you look at those people and go, they're absolutely terrified, you know, and and they don't make good first impressions. You know, you, you mentioned at the start that, you know, Simone had to, to, to shift. And, you know, we look at those people who've been forced into those places of having to stand up and speak and, you know, network and all those. And because they don't want to do it, they're not good at it, and therefore it's not going to be successful for them. Absolutely. But I think one thing that's always important to remember with this is that we as humans don't really want to do anything that involves either effort or the possibility of being rejected. Right. Oh, especially um, the rejected just, part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just because we don't want to do something doesn't mean that it's not in our best interest to learn and take satisfaction. Mm-hmm. To, so one thing we talk about in our book is – you actually get to choose what you take satisfaction from. You get to choose your internal model. When you get angry about something or when you get happy about something, you can't say, I get angry at that because that's just who I am. Mm-hmm. You know, you allowed yourself to become that person and you could become somebody different. And so one thing that we often focus on internally is what sort of events and what sort of wins do we want to make ourselves into the type of person that those wins and those events make us happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, when it comes to social events, you know, we're able to make ourselves into the type of people who walk away from a social gathering where we gave it successful, you know, 30 second advertising. And we're really happy about that. But then we also need to look at the stats around that. And the mere fact that we invested in changing ourselves that way shouldn't blind us to the fact that it actually has a very low payoff per time and money spent. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, you know, and, and that, as a business person, really should be what you're looking at. Um, you know, you're, whether we want to call it our return on investment or, or whatever. You know, I like networking. I'm a very social person, you know, if you can't tell already. And so working from home and only talking to my cats is just not fun for me. You know, I I love what I'm doing, but I am very social, so I like going to networking events. But then I have to really look at that and go, okay, was I going just to be social 
or was I going for business purposes? Um, you know, and, and if I'm going just to be social, that's okay as long as that's what I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, and, and I think that's where people get caught up too is, you know, they they really are going just to be social and they're not doing business. Well, if, if I'm thinking in my head, I'm going here to do business and I'm not successful, then why? You know, what happened? What was that mismatch? Um, but it comes back to what we were saying at the start. Why are you doing this? Am I going just to be social and I was social? Okay, that's fine. But if I was going because I had business purposes and that wasn't successful, then, you know, what, what needs to, to change? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, one of the things that, that I'm so interested in is your business. Because you mentioned, I mean, this is a large business. Um, and it's called Travel Max. You started it, you know, the, the two of you obviously are married and, and work together. So we did you know, not start it. Hold on, I have to interject oh, okay, here. Okay. Okay. We bought it. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, well, and more importantly, we bought it with other people's money. Okay. Not with our own money. Right. Right. Which is, you know, in in many ways, the smart way to go. I mean, and the nice thing is, you have experience with venture capital, and and so you know that that helps. But you know why? Why did you decide, from your personal perspectives, and and that? this was a good business for you. You know, let, let's go back to the very start. That is so interesting. And I think this is something that business, you know, that took us a long time to learn in the business world that we didn't really, you know, we were focused when we first started, like most people are on sexy businesses. Right. These are cool startups solving world changing problems that are on the cutting edge of technology. You know, my first company was basically, um, what's that movie that just came out? Ready Player One. Yeah, it was basically Ready Player One was mm -hmm. my first company, but for old people. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and we went through other companies. You know, another, this was the other big one that we were working on for a while was, um, it was meant to help it easier for people to make money doing what they love, you know, purely like a social good company. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and and then uh, the one that we did that was successful, the first one we did that was successful was Art Corgi, which is now the sort of main mainstream mid-market source of uh, art commissions. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, you want to get commissions for a family Christmas card or something like that. Mm -hmm. But what we ended up realizing... Um, is that we were always focused on whatever was sexy and cool and moving fast. And what we decided to do was say, okay, let's take a step back from all of that and look at what people like us aren't looking at. Mm -hmm. And that's how we found Travel Max. Mm -hmm. We were looking at buying a company. We raised something called a search fund to buy like a mid-sized company. And when we were looking at travel agencies, we were like, you know, we had talked to a travel and we we're like, what? Travel agencies don't still exist. And they're like, yeah, it's actually like a really huge industry. And we're like, what? So then we looked more into it. You know, we Google it in the New York Times, you know, the first article that comes up. Travel agencies, almost always cheaper than booking online. Mm -hmm. And we're like, what? You know, this like warped our worldview. Mm -hmm. um, and when we saw that, we were like, okay. People like us from our background, for some reason, are dismissing travel agencies 
even though they're much better than booking online, mm -hmm. why is that? And why have we fundamentally misunderstood the economics of this industry? And it's where we find things like that, where we find those little issues where for whatever reason we had dismissed an industry that turned out to be really good. Mm -hmm. That's where we say, okay, there's probably arbitrage in this space. Mm -hmm. and, and, and just by the way, because your viewers are probably curious why this is the case, what it turns out is if you're Amazon and you're buying 100,000 wrenches, you can always get them cheaper if you're buying them together. Right. But yeah, if cost you of scale. are, uh, yeah, but if you're a company like an airline or a hotel that has a constantly expiring inventory, if you know that you can fill 80% of the seats on your plane at, you know, X cost, but to fill the rest, you have to reduce the price by 40%, okay, well, you're going to sell them at X cost. And then what you're going to do is you're going to go to your sellers who aren't putting the price online because the price online is a standard price and say, here, sell it at below X cost and save the cost savings. Yeah, but don't tell anyone. But right. don't tell anyone mm -hmm. um, and use that to sell the rest of my seats. And so whenever you have a constantly expiring, limited and geographically constrained inventory, online is always going to be more expensive than the worst way to buy something. Yeah, whereas agencies get access to prices that... Are, are way lower than online, but they're not allowed to tell anyone. But not all the time, only about 30% of the time. 70% of the time we're the same prices by right. online. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I, I love that you took what used to be, you know, the standard. I mean, you know, when, when I was growing up, well, we couldn't, I mean, we didn't have the technology to buy tickets direct. We had to deal with travel agents. And then of course, you know, as you said, those, those went away. And so you've brought that back. And, and granted, there are, you know, there are other travel agencies out there, you know, and, and but you you reviewed it and you looked at it. and You thought this is a great business opportunity. And I think the problem with, uh, you know, many people who, who leap into business and whether it's that they buy an existing business or they start mm -hmm. their own is they think, oh, this is a good idea. I'm, I'm going to go do it. And and that's that's how they start the process. You know, it's not. A thoughtful process. It's not does this align with my personal goals, all those various things. It's just, well, hey, I want to go do this. Well, and the funny thing is, we notice in business schools, it's like the same five startups every time. Right. It's the wine startup, it's the travel startup, it's the food delivery startup, it's the pet startup, mm -hmm. and it. What, what's the other one? The travel startup. Say, like no, the no, travel. no, no, no. The skill sharing for highly skilled people. Yes, mm -hmm. that one. Yeah, and and, and, and I, I don't think people realize just how yeah how as repetitive. VCs you see how repetitive it is. You know, mm -hmm. at Stanford every year there's maybe you know ten startups and five of them are the same every single year. Mm -hmm. Right, because those sure. are yeah. the popular ones that have made money, and and so we of course think, ooh, as a business person, I want to do what's popular and what makes money. And, and, you know, at some point there is this little thing called market saturation. <laughs> and, and so those stop making money, those stop being popular. Um, you know, travel agencies went by the wayside a lot of, in a lot of ways when the airline industry said, hey, we're going to stop paying you commissions. Um, yeah. You know, because the, there wasn't money in it for them anymore. Um, you know, and, and, and that was We still get commissions, by the way. Right. A lot well, of people think mm -hmm. what they stopped paying was domestic commissions mm -hmm. on coach seats. Right. But everyone doesn't know that. Everyone thinks that travel agencies lost their commissions and they didn't. Mm -hmm. And we can pass those commissions on to the customer. Mm -hmm. Right. 
And especially because as you know, there as you said, you know, there's there's bulk, there's there's all those things. Um, but you know, one of the things that makes me curious uh, talking through this with you is that you do, you know, you are married and you work together. And, um, you know, as we, re- you know, as, as this program is airing, my husband and I are about to celebrate, ready for this, our 25th wedding anniversary. Oh. I know, yay. There is no way I could work with him. Um, what? you know, and, and I mean, we're, it's, it's one of those things where we just have very different styles of working. Um, he, he cannot, could not grasp being an entrepreneur, um, you know, all these various things. And so it fascinates me when people are married and they are successfully working together. So how does that work for you guys? Well, I would say first off, Malcolm and I also have super different ways of working and thinking. And what we've ultimately done is used that to our advantage. Mm-hmm. It, it turns out that all of my weaknesses match almost perfectly with all of his strengths. Perfect. Um, and so we, we use I, that I, to I our think advantage. that's a generic answer. So one thing I would say is, so The Pride Witch's Guide to Life is a book that we're promoting right now, right? Mm-hmm. But the foundation also has another book that we're working on right now, which is on relationships. Mm. Um, and we talk about the core failings of relationships and, and um, you know, why relationships like ours can work the way they do and why other relationships may not work this way. And we think one of the critical failures in relationships in our society is this, I would say, like it's such a dumb idea, which is that compromise should be a part of a relationship. Right. Um, And I think compromise, any relationship where decisions are made by compromise is bound to deteriorate with more interaction. The more the couple interacts, the more the relationship will deteriorate. And people say, how could you say that? Everyone knows that compromise, equality, blah, blah, blah. And it's, okay, the reason why compromise causes deterioration in a relationship is because both parties has a incentive to misrepresent their views. Mm-hmm. If, um, you know, my wife wants five to be the answer and I want 10 to be the answer, I have an incentive to misrepresent my answer is 20 and she has an incentive to misrepresent her answer is two so that the midpoint comes closer to the actual answer we want, Mm -hmm. which unfortunately means that in any unresolved conflict, both parties are going to continually be driven more and more towards extremes over time. Mm -hmm. Because after I argue that my position is really 20, well, I begin to kind of believe that. Well, Well, and the other problem with compromise too, is that it's, it's from an entirely dangerous perspective, the perspective mm -hmm. that it's about trying to find some sort of equilibrium between my needs and your needs. When instead one could argue that what you want to build is a relationship and you want to come up with solutions that are optimal for the couple, for the entity that you create together. Right. Well, and it's funny because as we were talking about this, I was thinking back to exactly what we were saying before. It's not that you're getting a ribbon for participation. Sometimes you have to win and sometimes you have to lose. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, and compromise does that doesn't happen. Now, yes, there are some things, obviously, that, that you have to compromise on. But, you know, if you always feel like you're giving in, then you're right. That's not a healthy relationship. Yeah, yeah but, but more than that, and, and, and what you're saying just strikes something for me is I, I never feel like one of us has won or lost. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more that it's more to what we've been talking about earlier, which is if I'm wrong, I want to know that I'm wrong. And when Malcolm and I have a disagreement about something and and we look for a resolution, 
usually it's because one person is wrong mm -hmm. and the other person is right and a decision has to be made. And ultimately, we have a system whereby we, we try to find the most correct solution and, and we're happy with that because it is the most correct mm -hmm. for us as a couple. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, one person in the relationship has to be making the decisions with each, within each domain of life mm -hmm. instead of hoping for compromise. Right. And that's what I think makes our relationship work is that within every domain of our life, one partner does have an easy final call. Yeah. And so that we know that our goal is not um, to win an argument, but it's to convince the other person that the path of action is X or Y, or to listen to the other person and understand their, their decisions and why they think that we're wrong in the decision we're making. And then that person makes the executive decision. Right. Well, and clearly that is why it works for you guys to be in business together. Um, and it's funny because I, I interviewed someone, um, several weeks ago on the program about, you know, how a, a business has to have a leader, you know, that one person in charge. And, you know, and, and, and I gave him the example of a company that I worked for one time where we had co-CEOs and that was, that was just, but it, it had been set up to fail from the very start. I mean, you know, it was, it was one of those where the, the parent company was basically wanting to see who was going to win, um, you know, and, and so, yeah, it was, it was a disaster to start with, but, you know, it's, it's, there, there are ways that there obviously can be two leaders, but it, it takes it takes really a thoughtful process to work through it and make sure that it's it's it, you, you mentioned the word you know a while ago fair you know and and equitable and, and all of those various things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or or more like there's a clear division of labor and right. a clear chain of command. Right, because and you, and you have different styles. So Malcolm does what Malcolm's good at. Simone does what Simone's good at, and that's what makes the company successful. Yes, and it's a really interesting dynamic because what we did, the the, the way that we acquired money to acquire a business from investors, is we followed what's called the entrepreneurship through acquisition model or the search fund model, mm -hmm. which involves raising money from investors looking for a business, finding the right one, and then acquiring it and running it until, you know, you basically have a profitable exit and you make everyone else money. Um, and, and usually this is done by one or two people. I think the majority of successful search funds are run by pairs. But of course, most pairs are not married couples. Most pairs are ex-banking, ex-consulting, Stanford, Har Stanford, Harvard, M MBAs right. um, who are both male. And I think it's really interesting the the problems that come up when you do have two um, separate entities, you know, not in a combined relationship like a married couple mm -hmm. or maybe a family uh, who find themselves as as co-CEOs of a business, because then there are issues of, OK, well, who gets to make the final call and mm -hmm. who is the right? Yeah, a lot of investors wouldn't give us money. We were it was remarkable that we raised our fund at all. Yeah, and yet I think it's kind of ridiculous that, that they think that two unaligned people are going to do a better job running a business together. Well, and, and I hate to say it, but I'm also guessing that a lot of people looked at you and went, you're too young. <laughs> Even though you're extremely talented, extremely knowledgeable, well-educated, you know, that's that's kind of one of those, maybe it's the old banker stereotype of, I'm sorry, <laughs> you, you don't have enough experience in this area. Oh, I, I think we've been shielded to a great extent from ageism 
that doesn't favor young people having began our careers in Silicon Valley where everyone right. expects the person running right. the company to be to some be, pimply yeah, 25 years old. Yeah, uh-huh. if that's true. If you're in Silicon Valley, you're over the hill. Yeah, like you, you will not be in a leadership position. Or, right. I mean, yeah, like, I that's an we, exaggeration. We all look at Bill Gates and go, really? What's he still doing there? Exactly. Yeah. He's looking a little, little, a little he's mature. He's a little old in the tooth. Uh, long in yeah. the tooth, I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, he's younger yeah. than me. I shouldn't say that. But <laughs> no, yeah. it, it's interesting though how in different industries ages are perceived extremely differently, mm-hmm. and and again, it just comes down to these weird biases we've formed, which have some merit, but we're we're heeding them in the wrong ways and. In the end, humans are just extremely faulty in the way that they think. And, and again, we just want people to be systematic about how they got to those conclusions. Right. And did I get to that conclusion because I have a bias against younger or older people? Or do I really have good reasons to think a certain thing about right. someone? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I was saying at the very start, you know, the person who you know was saying all millennials are bad. Why? And and, I mean, that really was my question to her was why on and and I was probably a little snarky when I said, why on earth did you think that? Um, And but but it is it's that that whole cultural bias, you know, all these various things that we've been raised to think or we've read, you know, I'm I'm you know, I love Facebook. I'm on Facebook a lot. But one of the things that I always look at is where did that information come from? Why should I believe it to be true or untrue and then go from the filter, you know, through that? And and so a lot of that I just don't even read because it just makes me go crazy. And so I just don't pay any attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Yeah, the quality of information online is, is a little disturbing, and there's a lot of a lot of nonsense. Well, the quality of information on the news is a little disturbing too. Yeah, yeah no, I, I don't know what to believe. I mean, you have to really choose, and you have to right. be really systematic about it. Otherwise, you're you're lost. Nothing yeah, makes sense. What a world we live in. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and but you know, let's let's be honest about this. This is something you know. I'm sure that people thought, well, you know, why did caveman Ugg put that up? Um, you know, many years ago, I was in Roswell, New Mexico. You know, and, and, you know, I mentioned my my science fiction thing and, and, you know, all these things. And so I made my poor husband go through Roswell, New Mexico. And they, of course, have a museum. And, you know, up on, you know, one of the big displays was the a major newspaper. And it might have even been something like the, the Times. I mean, it was it was a newspaper that people recognized, especially, you know, whenever, you know, all of this happened in Roswell, New Mexico, like 57, 59, whatever. Um, and the headline of the newspaper said, aliens have landed in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, and I remember looking at that and just kind of chuckling to myself. But th- there was a group of, of women next to me that were in probably about their 80s. And one of them said, it must be true because it was in the newspaper. And I was thinking, eek! <laughs> Certainly not of this generation. Well, but there's no standard of evidence, so that's interesting. Yes, standard of evidence. Very true. And it was a a source that she considered to be reputable. And then, of course, you know, the other ladies with her, you know, beat them with, you know, beat her about the head and were like, oh, you silly goose. Um, But, but yeah, you know, that that does go to show that, that, you know, our biases tell us one thing when it really might not be true. Yeah. It's true. And it, it, well, I don't know. I feel like I butt up every day against my own mind and my own biases and my own flaws. And I, I don't even know how I function. It's, it's remarkable that we're able to do what we do. And, and it's really thanks to 
the giants on whose shoulders we stand mm -hmm. and not us. And I think we give ourselves way too much credit and also think we're capable of a lot more thought and reasoning than we are. Mm -hmm. And the more we are willing to admit that to ourselves and really try to be systematic and pragmatic about why we're doing what we do, how we can control what we do, how we emotionally control our reactions, how we overcome our biases, the more we can actually succeed. The way, the way we say it to, our, to ourselves when we're talking is that we as humans are barely sentient. We are grasping at sentience. And that we need to take those few brief moments of lucidity we get in life or in a day where we realize we're actually thinking for ourselves and not on autopilot to try to adjust our autopilot to, so that our autopilot moves us closer to our goals. Mm -hmm. You know, and for me, it's it's to continually be learning and be asking those questions. Um, you know, I mentioned my shelves and shelves of, of business and marketing books. It, part of that is to be, you know, some of it is what are the trends, you know, what are these various things. But how can I, if, if it works for me, how can I implement what they're saying? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not just going to be the bump on the log that is still doing something the way we did it, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You know, there, and, and there are still people that, you know, oh, well, we still have to be doing business this way because it's the way we've always been doing business. That, you know, no, that's, that's never a good way to be doing anything um you know and and so it, it it really is to me it's about this lifelong learning and and always looking at things and, and maybe it's being that five-year-old kid going around going why why and and then when somebody tells me well because questioning that well why me you know and and you know pretty soon they smack you you know about the head and, and you, know, because, you know you've you've asked why one too many times but it is about that you know we should always be saying well why why is it this way Indeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, 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 yeah, we need to make that a cultural thing where that's a positive thing to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're not bopping somebody about the head when they're saying why too many times. Yeah. Though we have to also admit that uh, for many of us, it's hard to do that. It's painful to do that. It means mm -hmm. that we have to think about something when we'd really just rather not. Right. And, and so it's never going to be instinctually easy unless you have some sort of mental tweak that makes you very different from the typical human. Mm -hmm. But it's still very important to do that and to value that. Right. And we, we do, we outgrow it. You know, when we're kids, we perpetually are going around going, why? And, or, you know, be touching things we shouldn't be touching, you know, being curious. Now, I am one of those people that if it says wet paint, my hand immediately goes out and touches it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 we need to go back to that, that innocence of wanting that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Well, holy cow. We, can you believe it? We are at the top of the hour. Um, you know, I want to mention a, a little bit more about pragma, pragmatists <laughs> guide to yeah. life. Um, make sure you know, uh, do to to look that up. I love the fact that you have communities um, that can support people. You've got all that information online. But how do they find you and connect with you online? Well, we encourage people to visit pragmatist.guide, our website, and email us, malcolm at pragmatist.guide, simone at pragmatist.guide, or search The Pragmatist's Guide to Life on Amazon.com. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you have any interest in having us help you book some personal travel or travel for business, whatever it may be, we'd be delighted to have our, our personal travel concierge just help you out, do comparison shopping for you, handle all the logistics. Email us at ceo at travelmax.com. Mm -hmm. We'd be delighted to help. 
And you know, just take a look at TravelMax.com, folks. The, the the packages and things that are there are absolutely phenomenal. And then, as they said, you know, if you've got an idea, hey, you know, I want to do this and this, you know, have them have them help you set it up. Yeah, I mean, why should you be spending all your time agonizing over whether or not you found the right price when you can instead have someone who does nothing but that all day, every day, just mm-hmm. do it for you? Right, because it's like we said, we're we're essentially lazy in a lot of ways. Yes, indeed. <laughs> why not feed that sometimes when it's appropriate? Right. So right. you can spend more time asking why. Mm-hmm. Or walking the dog or smelling the flowers or sleeping, <laughs> whatever indeed. it is. We all need more of that. Right, right. Well, this really has been absolutely delightful. Um, I've been having a lot of fun, and, and I can definitely see that we will have you guys on again. I am Deb Creer. I've been having an absolutely wonderful time talking with Malcolm and Simone Collins of the Pragmatist Foundation. And until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. You've been listening to C-Suite Radio. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.